Welcome to episode eight of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is Patrick, Mark and Graham once again discussing the music of the post-punk slash new wave era of the late 70s and early 80s. Now here's Mark to introduce today's band. Killing Joke emerged from Notting Hill and the squats of Ladbroke Grove during what became known as the second wave of punk in late 1978. Starting life in the reggae-tinged Matt Stagger band, keyboardist Jeremy Jazz Coleman and drummer Paul Ferguson struck out on their own, placing a notice in the music press looking to find a guitarist and bass player who wanted to be part of the Killing Joke. What they got in Kevin Geordie Walker on guitar and Martin Youth Glover on bass was a unique electro-dub punk funk sound slowed down everything and added keyboards to create something entirely new. Still recording and touring with this original lineup again, they have survived in various forms for almost 40 years. They cast a long, dark, influential shadow over bands as diverse as Metallica and Nirvana, but it is their early works that set the template and reconfigured what the noise left by the end of punk could be. Sorry, Mark. You love your killing joke. I admit to being a big fan of their early work, as I've just said. <laughs> um, and a band that's been around for 40 years is going to have a lot of stuff. They Can have had the original lineup back again uh, after some time. It's been going, I think, for maybe for the last 10 or 15 years, Yeah, which is interesting in itself. But, um, yeah, look, they came out of a lot of what was going on in, the, in London at the time. They, uh, a lot of their references were what Public Image were doing. Um, London... As anybody who's familiar with that music of the era would know, it was a lot of dub, a lot of reggae mixed in with punk, which John Lydon of Pill was a big fan of. They weren't the only band to do it. I think that's what makes them a really interesting band and the period really interesting yep. because it was very experimental. You know, there was nothing off the table. I mean, Jazz Coleman's a keyboard player. Yeah, yeah. You know, and apart from Gary Newman, who we spoke about a while ago, yeah. not a lot of bands were incorporating keyboards mm. into a punk or post-punk yep. sound. And, and to have a keyboard player as the lead singer as well is, yeah. is is a pretty unusual thing. I mean, a flock of seagulls, obviously. <laughs> um, well, we never, never forget course. them. Promises. <laughs> Promises? <laughs> we're, 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 <laughs> hang on. The Canadian band who oh. had the big hit with okay, you're really, Baby It's You. You're drawing a long bow. Yeah, I don't yeah. think Promises were um, post-punk. No, I didn't say they were. Oh, okay. But bands in the history of popular music who had oh, keyboard okay. players. We're going to expand that. Keyboard okay. players as okay. singers. It's an unusual and thing to do. If we're talking flock of seagulls and promises, you know, we're kind of clutching at straws, obviously. So for Killing Joke to do that um, with a singer who is as extraordinary and as dynamic as Jazz Coleman is, it just immediately set them apart. But it might have been a little bit of a millstone for them as well because he was you know, stuck behind a pretty stationary instrument. Mm. Well, if you've seen any early footage, and I think, Graham, we were talking about there was a gig from 1981 where he's out the front with an Oberheim absolutely going bonkers and, and just he's a complete nut and he yeah. holds your attention in this gig. Yeah, but yeah. He's, at, he's at the front with a keyboard and yeah. it looks really quite strange. <laughs> um, yeah, he's he's, he's quite an aggressive singer. Yeah. So you expect that kind of aggression to be um, unhindered, I guess. Mm. So to be stuck behind a keyboard, it sort of seems at odds with what he's with what he's singing. Well, I think when they started out, he was doing a lot more keyboards, and then as they progressed, he does less maybe these yeah. days live. And I think they actually have a keyboardist with them on tour. 
Mm. So he may not be stuck there right, quite okay. so much. Yeah. But it was certainly different and uh, what he played on keyboards was quite different too. Yeah, It yeah. was lots of low menacing sort of noises yep. and notes. Uh, he was classically trained, uh, yep. I believe, as, um, and had been, you know, playing classical music up till he was 15 or so. And according to him, he had a bit of a moment where uh, I think his parents went away for the weekend and he um, was left to his own devices, which is always dangerous, <laughs> and um, ended up taking drugs of some description with some young woman and um, discovering music. And uh, they came back home and he, you know, according to him, he got rid of his keyboard and or his classical keyboard or whatever he yeah, had yeah, and yeah. was dressed in black and was completely changed <laughs> <laughs> over the course of a weekend. So um, that's what can happen, wow, kids, yeah, yeah. when you drop acid. Be careful. Yeah. Be Parents, careful. never leave your children Never leave your children alone to. ever. <laughs> that's right. For yeah. more than, what, six to eight hours yeah, well, that's that's the recommended dosage anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I suppose going back to the beginnings of Killing Joke and their first EP? Their first EP, yeah. Um, well, I guess we'd, we'd sort of start out with how they got together. Jazz and Paul Ferguson, the drummer, were in a band called the Matt Stagger Band, which is a pretty horrible sounding name for a band. Mm. Kind of a reggae. <laughs> not if you're Matt Stagger. Not if your name's Matt Stagger. <laughs> he would have loved it. I just wanted to read this quote because this is one of Paddy's things. Of, um, of how he got into into this because it's great um, with this girl. So okay. if, if you can edit this back in previously, that would be great. Okay. okay. <laughs> It'll be inter- no inter- interesting edit, but we'll see how we go. Well, if you cut it and drop it, can you drop it back in before? Or Can I put in the, uh, the tape spooling backwards sound? Jazz <laughs> tells that his parents went away for the weekend and um, he had a young girl over who was part of his classical uh, group that he was playing music with. And uh, she said, you know, have you ever listened to, you know, any pop music? And he's like, no, I haven't. You mean like Top of the Pops? And she's like, no, no, listen to this. So she puts on, you know, Can or something like that and then asks him if he's ever taken marijuana. And he says, I've never taken any drugs and I never would. Anyway, I ended up listening to Can, smoking dope and losing my virginity all in one night. <laughs> and the next day I was wearing black and when my parents came back from holiday, I'd sold my violin and had bought a mini Korg. <laughs> I was ready to go and they were horrified. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there's Jazz, ready to go. He's he's in the, he's now um, joined the Matt Stagger Band uh, with Paul Ferguson and they um, were playing this sort of reggae-style stuff and I guess Jazz was playing keyboards and quickly realised that maybe they had something that was worth exploring as separate to reggae. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so they placed an ad in the uh, music press that said, want to be part of the killing joke. We mean it, man. Total exploitation, total publicity, total anonymity. Base <laughs> and lead wanted. So that's what they put out there to, to, to get somebody else that would come and join them. And, and um, who and, came? And they found, um, obviously, Geordie, the, the uh, guitarist, who'd mm-hmm. never played in a band before, was also classically trained, had played classical guitar. And Youth, who had been around and played a bit of bass with some punk bands and actually been on tour with a, with a punk band, uh, which may have been the adverts from memory. Those two answered the ad. They jammed together and immediately decided that this was, this was it. Yep. This was the band. Yep. And this was 78, so this yep. was um, October 78. It's okay. probably just as well that they were called Youth and Jazz and Geordie rather than Martin, Kevin and Jeremy, <laughs> <laughs> just in terms of the killing joke, you know, credibility. It was the times, up. Patrick, you know, you yeah. had to have a name, you know, like Sid Vicious. Johnny Is this Rock. going back to the uh, the Melbourne musicians thing? <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> right. that's probably a good point, you see. Yeah, have mm. an interesting name. It makes you more interesting straight away. Yeah. yeah. Kevin, you know, it's not that interesting. Kevin on Jeremy. lead guitar. 
<laughs> Jeremy on keyboards out the front. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> And Martin on bass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that, that's how they got together. Yes. And uh, yeah, I think it was it was the times. There was a lot of stuff going on. People were hanging around John Lydon's house. I think youth was 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 a friend of John Lydon's, and so oh, I didn't he, realize um, that. Yeah, he was um, he was involved in his brother's band, the Four B Twos, at some point. Oh, yeah, he may have yeah, played yeah. bass or produced their first. So this was nineteen seventy eight. It was indeed. Um, when was the first EP recorded? Well, they they set up their own label called Malicious Damage. Of course, uh, of course they did. Of course they did. <laughs> um, to, to put out um, their own music because obviously at the time, you know, maybe they weren't getting any interest. I don't know if they'd done any gigs. They may have done a few small shows. Um, self-financed EP, self-financed uh, record label. Like Jazz is background. I think you said he was half his, his mother was half Indian, I think. Right. So, he, yeah, I think they were quite intellectual and quite sort mm. of... Artie, so they probably had a few Bob and may have paid for this, but he's never going to say that. Yeah. Uh, released a three track EP called Turn to Red. That was December 79? Uh, October 79. Okay. That was. It was re released a, a couple of months later with an extra track, I think, which okay. is maybe what you're right. thinking. Right. But during that period, they had a John Peel session and they managed to get the tapes of the EP to John Peel. Right. And, uh, managed to smuggle it in there somehow and get him to play it. And he was blown away apparently and, and thought it was fantastic and so played it a lot on his show. So John Peel yeah. being the very famous indie DJ that broke... And influential. Influential and yeah. broke a lot of bands. John Lydon also gave it a name check in one of the music papers and so they started to get a bit of momentum right. from that EP, which strangely enough sounds nothing like what they mm. were known for. <laughs> The, the nervous system, is that what it's called? Nervous, nervous system. Nervous one of them. Single sounds to me like one of the Clash reggae. Yeah, kind of it's kind of a songs. funk pop thing. Yeah, it's very lightweight, isn't it? Mm. Um, but it's it, it's quite it's quite likable, but, but but quite pop and mm. the opposite of malicious damage and killing jokes and you know all that <laughs> yeah. sort of stuff. So it's really quite strange that they had this kind of hardcore philosophy. But the first EP they put out was quite sort of lightweight. Absolutely it was. I mean, Turn to Red is just a dub track, which is interesting in itself. But the other one, Are You Receiving, is just like pop punk. Mm. You know, it's very, very lightweight. The singing's pretty friendly. Mm. I mean, the three tracks themselves, you would say, don't point towards what Killing Joke are going to do at all. Yeah. Um, I wasn't super familiar with that stuff because I didn't know them at the time, but I was quite surprised going back to it. And in classic post-punk fashion, they had this extraordinary transformation in such a short period of time, a bit like Japan and uh, Gary Newman and and so on. And if I got my timeline right, that EP, the Turn to Red EP, you, you say October, yep. and I think February 1980, so four months later, War Dance single. Was, was the first single, yeah. And that is kind of true classic killing joke right from the start. Absolutely. And, and that... That is malicious damage. And it is no. a killing joke. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. Like the, the gap between those two things, you'd expect it to be two or three years, but it's actually quite quick. So something happened between that EP and the, the first album coming out, which is a huge leap yeah, in sound. Yeah. Mm. Might have been another weekend away for Jazz's parents. <laughs> yes, a different drug, a different girl. <laughs> quite possibly. Um, I was also wanting to just talk a little bit about their influences as they describe them. There's a track by the Alex Harvey band. He's a big influence on a lot of post-punks. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm not, big big yeah, influence on The Cure. Not super familiar with him, but he has a lot of influence. And there's a track by him called The Faith Healer, which we should try and dig up, because the start yeah. of it features this keyboard kind of rah, yeah, rah, 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 sort yeah. of thing, which is a bit like what Killing Joe 
Joke yeah, yeah. became known for. And Jazz said if there's one track sort of that sums up how we became Killing Joke, that would be it. If your body's feeling bad And it's the only one you have You wanna take away the pain uh, They were also listening to a Chic compilation, uh, Nile Rogers, Bernard Edwards. Yeah. Chic yeah. disco that's where the, That's where the dance element came yeah. from. Yeah, they all love the dance music and, and, and uh, Paul Ferguson, the drummer, says, I always like to have a bit of a swing in the drumming, even though he belts the shit out of the drums. Yeah, yeah. They always have to swing. Yeah. Um, along with the usual suspects of, of Can and, and Kraftwerk and whoever else But Gar- Gary Glitter as well. Well, I was going to say any glam. Yeah. Uh, any glam stuff, Gary Glitter, whatever, that yeah. was a big influence. But that is also part of what a lot of the mm. bands of the era grew up listening to. So I think that that gives you a kind of a background into where they came from. Mm. And why their sound was a bit different yeah. to the other post-punk bands. Well, mm. when that album came out, or when the, let's say the first single came out, War Dance, it's quite astounding in terms of it's a riff but it's kind of brutal and it's it's pretty full on. Like mm. it, it doesn't sound like anything else that I that I could remember hearing mm. at the time. Um, where, where that came from, I don't know. But the sound was slower. Everything they were doing seemed a bit heavier and a bit slower than the other bands. Yeah. But maybe once again in the context of what Pill were doing mm. and other people. Maybe. Well, that was my um, my introduction to Killing Joke. I was friends with a guy in a very notorious punk band in Brisbane called The Young Identities, and he kind of got me into punk initially. And then it was just one day he had the first Killing Joke album, and he said, you should listen to this. This is really good. Did he threaten you? And, and he did. <laughs> I think he did. And I said, all right, all right, I'll do it. And, um, yeah, I took it home, and a Requiem starts off with that... Very and, ominous, isn't it? Yeah, it's very ominous. But also, it, it was one of those moments where I realised, oh, music is slowing down. Mm. But also, there's a, a synth in there. Yeah. And it was one of those moments. I remember that I had the same uh, moment when I listened to the Talking Heads or Remain in Light, and it was full of all that percussion. There, mm. and I thought, oh, well, we're allowed to do this now, aren't we? Things have changed. Uh, yeah, and, and it was the same with, with the Killing Joke. And if there was a, a moment where I realised that post-punk had started, <laughs> if there was a starting point, even though there were other bands before that, for me it was the, it was the killing joke in Requiem. This is different, this is you know, a new direction. And this is what Gavin was saying to me, so he said, you should listen to this. Because it's a lot different to, you know, the XTCs and everything else that I've been listening to. Kind of nervous, edgy, faster stuff. Yeah, it was all all faster, quirky. You know, this 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 was was really serious and really kind of heavy and and slow. Uh, Yeah, and and moody. It was was really moody. Yeah, and um, and and of course, The Cure and all those other bands, Joy Division, were also had a sense of moodiness about them. But it was really a noticeable change. Mm, It was a noticeable change. Yeah, I remember a Requiem because I think I was talking to you guys. It's the only record I bought. I'm not the only record, but one of the few records I bought after reading a review of it. And I went and (laughs) bought it based on the review. And I I have to hear this. I have to listen to it. And I bought the seven-inch single and I was just blown away because it sounded exactly like what I wanted it to sound like. And and it's just three chords. The whole song is three chords. There is no change. The chorus, everything's the same. But it's so heavy and it's just... It's very catchy though. That's the other thing. It's yeah. it's got a really catchy kind of hook to it. I don't know how they did it. Yeah, it was the biggest thing I'd heard in ages. I loved yeah, it. And yeah. This is what I, I suppose that the I must have probably bought in '81, but it came out as the second single on the album. And the album itself, self-titled, self-titled, self-produced, and I think they may have paid for it themselves because it was on their own label before they signed a deal with anybody. I right. think. Right. 
from memory, but um, mm. obviously they got some distribution to put it out properly. It did yeah. come out on EG, but I think they recorded it and stuff themselves. Mm. All right. And that was August that 1980. Was August 1980. And um, that's actually relatively late in terms of the post-punk bands that we've been talking about and maybe even post-punk era quite mm. late on for a band to release their first album. So August 1980 is only a few weeks before Spandau Ballet released To Cut a Long Story Short. So the new romantic era was, already was, was, was about to happen. So they yeah, were kind of point. stragglers in a sense, killing mm. jokes. So it, it kind of did make me wonder whether that's why that first album, which uh, reached number 39 in the UK charts and didn't have any hits from it, whether maybe they were just a little bit out of step in terms of the music culture, even though it was a really good first album. Well, it's a deeply influential album. I think critically they they were doing very well, but you're right, there was no big sort of successful breakthrough or anything like that, but I think they were getting a lot of press, they were doing a lot of gigs um, and getting a lot of attention, but maybe that's the difference between them and some of the other bands we've mm. talked about. They were playing uh, with Joy Division actually on a tour in early 1980 from memory, right. um, they would alternate between head, headlining the gig, mm. which I thought was great because, you know, the, the, there's two bands that you would want to see at that period for doing similar-ish but yeah, completely yeah, different yeah. things. Mm. Well, they, they certainly attracted a lot of attention or jazz with his kind of real charisma mm. and sounds magazine memorably described him as a cross between the Incredible Hulk and... Windsor Davies, as in <laughs> the Sergeant Major from It Ain't Half Hot. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I can see Which that. I think is is a fantastic description of him. Barking orders. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Or barking abso- mad. It absolutely nails him. So Yeah, yeah, well, that, that pretty much does cover it. Um, I was going to say there was a description in the music papers of that tour I was just talking about. They would do reviews every, every week or so of it and they would give like a football score thing, who was a better band. And it would be described as, as Northern Gloom 1, Southern Stomp 2, for example. <laughs> so Joy Division being Northern Gloom and, and Killing Joe being Southern Stomp. And uh, the different bands who would, who would be better on any given night, which I thought was um, wow, was quite interesting. So, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, so the, the album had some great tracks on it. I mean, uh, Change was the B-side to Requiem, the single I have, mm, which was, was incredibly song. funky. Like for the time, it sounded to me like disco. It sounded like punk funk, mm. which was something I'd always loved disco, but it was kind of like a little verboten at the time. Yeah. And to hear a, a punk band playing it pretty proficiently uh, was very exciting. But interestingly, we're going to get into who ripped off who here later, but um, <laughs> the song Change is, is a complete appropriation of the band Wars song, Me and Baby Brother. Same riff, it's it's exactly the same, but nobody kind of mentioned that at the time. But if you put them together and have a listen to it, you, they're the same. Well, it's okay because people ripped off Killing Joke eventually. Anyway, well, so. we will get there, yeah, <laughs> but I've, I've got another interesting one about that later, but we'll get to that. <laughs> um, but anyway, all, all, all good things come to those who wait, which is another good song on the album called The Wait. Nice, and, segue. nice segue. Yeah, mm, yeah. And I just thought of that. I heard recently Metallica do a version of The Wait. Yeah, that was on an EP that they did a, oh, some time ago. They were yeah. big fans. And it's, there's not much to it, but it's just like this ascending chord change in the chorus. Yeah. And to hear Metallica do it, I kind of got it now that I can see where they would have been influenced by that, because mm. it wasn't a million miles away from something that they would do. The 
verse is very Metallica mm. as well, I reckon, that kind of edge, hard edge, kind of fast riffing. I mean, Metallica do it times 100, but yeah, mm. you can see that they were, they were certainly into them, that's for sure. Okay, so um, where do we all stand on this first album? Is that your favourite album of theirs? Yeah. If I had to pick one album of theirs, I think that is the most influential one and probably one of my favourites and certainly longest longest lasting in its influence. Mm -hmm. Listening to it again and remastered, I think it's fantastic because it's heavy, but the bass makes it somehow different. Youth mm. plays some really interesting things. He goes to interesting places. The, the dub influence in there is quite something and, and jazz is unhinged lunatic that he is. <laughs> yeah. And then album number two. Which followed up pretty quickly, um, June 81, so less than a year later, mm, uh, yep, which is pretty yep. impressive and once again goes to what we've been talking about with a lot of our bands, that they seem to be very proficient and very fast yeah, yeah. on getting new stuff out. Um, and, and did that feel like uh, a bit of a musical progression to you? It did to me. The first thing I heard from that album was Follow the Leader. sequencer in it which like, mm. once again going back to disco right. I love Donna Summer I love all those things that featured yeah, it's almost know, like a Giorgio Moroder kind very of very much so and, and I mean um, New Order were sort of doing similar things at the time yep. with everything's gone green but yep. um, that was a great track and I was like wow and the sound was bigger again I think the drums were more kind of tribal he'd moved into mm -hmm. that sort of playing and our old friend Nick Lornay had yep. washed up again. Young Nick Lorna, who was probably, what, 21 or so at yeah. that stage, and this was just after he worked on Flowers of Romance, the public image yep. Yep. album. So I think mm. this might have been his, like, the, the second album or second or third album that he'd ever worked on as a yeah. producer. Well, I think, once again, Hugh Padgham might have been involved and there was some sort of falling out and some damage was done to yeah, the there was, there was some dust-up, wasn't there? Yeah, and so Nick was handed the, the rein, so to speak. You, yeah. you take over these, these yeah, idiots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't work with these people I can't anymore. work with these people. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because um, Nick Lorne is associated with some pretty sonically out there albums from Flowers of Romance to his later work with... Australian bands such as Midnight Oil and Models and In Excess and so on for the very, very distinctive sound of albums like The Swing and Pleasure of Your Company. and Big drum sounds. Yeah, yeah, and the Midnight Oil album 10 to 1. But this album doesn't have a particularly distinctive production feel to it to me. It sounds to me quite similar to the first album sonically. So okay. I'm kind of curious about what Nick brought to the table with this album. Because you weren't impressed by this. this, this uh, I, I, I like it, but it just doesn't feel like a huge progression mm. sonically from the previous album, even though What's This For? Um, this album contains my favourite Killing Joke song which of is? all time, I'd say, which is Tension. Oh, I thought you'd like Tension. Which sounds like a Gary Glitter cover. Very to much me. so. I think it was um, the B-side of Follow the Leader as well. So, okay, right, yeah, it was like right. that was the first two tracks that came out. Right, yeah, because I'm, I'm amazed that they didn't release Tension as a single because I think it's an absolute kind of killer. It's a stomper. Killer track. Yeah. Mm. Well, Graham, you'd, you'd be more inclined to talk about the production, but I, I think it sounds completely different. It, it's this, it's bigger. It's got more air in it and more space. And and, the, and those tribal drums that we've spoken about are really the Rotatoms and the Tom Toms are really coming to the fore on mm. that album. Um, it's cleaner, the production's a lot cleaner and, and the keyboards and having sequences and things going through it as well, I think, um, 
to me it sounded like a, a progression. But yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think it was a progression, but it wasn't like a, a huge leap forward. Mm. Um, I reckon at this point they were uh, still defining their sound. Mm. Well, they'd they'd found the sound as we were describing mm. earlier mm. Uh, in February 1980 with the what the the second single with the war dance, mm. and and this was you know what 15 16 months later. So it's it's not surprising that they hadn't taken a quantum leap, a second quantum leap. Yeah, I was just going to say the other track I really like on that album, uh, as well as the ones we mentioned, is um, Madness. Which is very funky. It's got that sort of slap bass going through it, and I think that sums up the sort of sound that I thought they had at the time, which is kind of, like I said, a punk funk sound. Yeah. Very kind of edgy and kind of slightly threatening, but you could dance to it. Mm. And we, we talked about maybe when we did Public Image that there were some danceable tracks on there that were a little less easy to dance to. Yeah. Um, this stuff did chart in America on the dance charts. A lot of their, their tracks and singles featured, you know, yeah. at whatever position, but they were getting yeah. through that. They were getting obviously trying to cover a little bit of that ground as well. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's but it's a tie for me between these two albums, um, which is my favourite, and also the artwork that Mike Coles did. He was involved in Malicious Damage with them. I think really sets them apart because it was quite futuristic in a way. Uh, mm. It was very punk and dark, but kind of quite Confr- cartoony. Confronting. Yeah, confronting. yeah, confronting. And, yeah. It absolutely was. Uh, certainly pushed the borders of what was going on. So how, would, you, how, how would you describe the artwork? Well, it's a little cartoony almost. Um, if you saw a Killing Joke T-shirt, you'd know it was them. Mm. Um, you knew straight away that it was Killing Joke. And I actually did make my own Killing Jokes T-shirts. I love them so much. <laughs> I hand-painted the cover of Requiem onto a T-shirt. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, so that's devotion. You had way too much time on your Well, I was at school, Graham, so I didn't have a lot to do. Um, but, yeah, I, I think Didn't the artwork... did you have an HSC to study for? <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, I think the artwork is an important part of a band like this is, I guess, the point I'm trying yeah. to make. Mm-hmm. And I think the best bands, you have an image straight away and you see what they're about from that. And I think they definitely did that. Yeah, they had a really strong image. Absolutely. And, and one of a strong aspect of their image was, funnily enough, the kind of anonymity... Of the members. ..of, of the band because, mm. there, you know, there were no photos of them on the on the cover... They didn't do much in the way of film clips. I don't mm. think they all had three of the four of them had nicknames. So you know, it was it was a really interesting exercise in kind of disappearing in the music. Mm. Well, that was in the ad. Remember, total anonymity. Yeah, yeah. So I guess they kind of got that, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. So total exploitation, total publicity, and total anonymity. So it's like <laughs> that's confusing. Mm. <laughs> but but as a, as a manifesto, that was actually how they proceeded. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You no. Know, so that was the original ad, and that's that's how it that's eventually. Exactly what they did. Yeah. Which I guess leads us to Revelations, which is well, uh, a ninety-two, uh, eighty-two. Sorry. I was just going to say that uh, I bought what's this for, and I was just thinking that um, I, I know that album better, but because I love Requiem and War Dance so much, I think I'm going to have to go with the first album as being as your favourite. It's favorite it's album. a close thing for me. I mean, I really really like them both. I think they're both really quite groundbreaking, which is the criteria that we're trying mm, to use yeah. for the bands we choose. Mm, yeah. Patrick, you'd, you'd plump for... I, 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 would, um, I would like a compilation of the two because I think there are weak <laughs> spots in both of them. So you think they'd make fan- one good album? Some fantastic songs. Well, they're on, both short albums. Both of them. I think they're yeah, both 46, yeah. 48 minutes, so you probably could easily do it. Yeah, yeah. It could, be a, it could get you a cassette, a C90. Yeah. And if you put 45 <laughs> minutes on each side, I away can, you go. I can see 45. <laughs> That'll do you, would it? 22 yeah. minutes apiece. All right. Okay. Um, um, yeah. But I just wanted to also say that uh, after What's This For... 
I stopped. Oh, sorry, can I can I interrupt you there? Sorry. sorry. Um, I like your pronunciation. And I think you're right. The emphasis, whether it's what's this? this for or what's this for, and I think in the album title, the word "this" is in capital it letters. Is. is that right? Yeah. So clearly. <laughs> Directing us towards a particular pronunciation. Okay, so what's this for? Let me say that again. After what's this for? (laughs) I um, I I guess I stopped listening to them because I didn't know the next two albums. Is that because your friend in the Young Identities didn't offer you any of the albums? Yeah, I know. Well, maybe it was because I started listening to Haircut One Hundred or Spandau Ballet. (laughs) That's right. The the new romantic movement has started. Look over here, Graham. It was like forgotten. It was Planet Earth time. But yeah, I I didn't know Revelations and Finances until the last couple of days when we were researching this particular podcast. Well, the funny thing um, about Revelations is that it was their most successful album up to that point. It reached mm. number 12 in the UK, released in July 82. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they certainly seem to be on the verge of kind of cracking it mm. in the UK without having anything close to a hit single. And Revelations didn't have any hits on it. I'm not sure what the highest charting single on that album was, but, you know, it would have been number 50 or so. I think so. it's got a couple of songs they still play on it. Is The Hum on that? I think it might be. Um, yeah, it was a Connie, yeah. Connie Plank produced Empire Song Got to number 43 Yeah, well, but, but there's a song on there called Chop Chop which that's is really, right. I, think, I think that was a single yeah. That, that might have been But yeah, yeah, look, it was done in Berlin So it was supposed to sort of have that feel And, mm. and Connie Plank, as we know, did a lot of bands around that time yeah. um, Personally, I, I think it's a terrible album and I, <laughs> I don't blame Youth for leaving afterwards this was his last Killing Joke album um, for for ten years. Terrible in terms of the production, quality of the songs, or go on, yeah, all of the. That's above. all I've got. No, but, all uh, of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Connie Plank, who had famously worked with Kraftwerk as as their producer, and had recently, like just prior to Revelations, he had worked on Rage in Eden, the Ultravox oh, okay. album. Mm-hmm. For instance, he worked on the Eurythmics album in the Garden. Their first album. He also did Hunters and Collectors. Um, yeah, yeah. Was that yeah. around that, that time? Was, that 80, was maybe the year after, after year Fireman's after. Curse. Might he have been 1983. 83, yeah. Yeah, so you can see why with those kind of bands behind him, the Killing Joke sound might have gotten a little bit softer which is compared to the first albums, which... Maybe, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I guess for me, once again, the bass became a bit more in the background, a little bit more pedestrian. It wasn't as interesting yeah. and that took an element of what I liked about them away. Um, I've listened to it a few times. I have it, but I just can't get engaged with it. And um, as I said, I can see that that was a shift. Mm. That was maybe the end of the road for a certain part of their yep. sound, and yep. um, and that's fine. But as I said, ironically, it was uh, their highest charting album up to that point anyway, easily. It might have been because they appeared on Top of the Pops. Ah, which song? So with uh, Empire Song. Right. And... Uh, they appeared on top of the pops. They're, I know where you're going with we're, this. We're heading a, we're going a little bit ahead of the story here <laughs> to the next. Oh yes, yes, of course. <laughs> to the next point in the story, uh, they appeared on top of the pops, and this is check it out on YouTube if if you get the chance. The singer of the band appears in a beekeeper's outfit, yes. <laughs> so you can't see his face. Oh, with the covered face. Yep. So we are left to. Assume that it's Jazz Coleman, <laughs> but we know now behind the behind the keyboard. But in fact, in terms of who appears to be miming, you know, the, the vocals, it seems to be Paul Ferguson on drums to a to a large extent, with a bit of Geordie on guitar. Obviously, it's a little bit hard to tell whether the beekeeper's lips are moving, or not. <laughs> <laughs> but it is it, it is a truly extraordinary performance, and I think possibly that led to the album 
being Killing Joke's highest charting album to that point, even though that performance. the song itself only got to <laughs> number 43 or whatever. Yep. But the reason I'm raising the question as to whether it is jazz common in the beekeeper's outfit, Mark, you can, you can probably Well, t- I guess what we're, we're all referring to is the, <laughs> the fact elephant in the room. At some point, uh, I believe it was, what, early 83, was it? Jazz decided that the world was coming to an end and that uh, the impending apocalypse meant that he'd best move to Iceland. Why uh, Iceland? He Well, he just decided that there was no there was no reason that... Um, it's all ice, he said, so uh, they figured the snow doesn't melt when exposed to bombs and radiation. That's a quote from him. <laughs> uh, and they wouldn't bomb Iceland, you know, they wouldn't bother. It's actually not all warhead. ice. He's thinking of Greenland. He went to the wrong place. Mm. Are you going to tell him? <laughs> I heard he was just pining for the fjords. Could have been that, could have been that. Um so, yeah, he, he took off and left uh, and no one knew where he was. Um, I've got another quote from him here for a little bit, which makes me laugh, because Geordie ended up joining him as well. Yeah, <laughs> he left yep. and went. Uh, they spent the first few months in an igloo, which kind of sucked, to be honest. Me and Geordie felt so stupid it was hard to explain how daft we felt <laughs> when the world didn't end. <laughs> so that left poor old Paul Ferguson and youth behind and... Uh, Youth left and uh, Paul Ferguson left as well. So the band essentially dissolved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. After the Iceland escape. So, how did they manage to record Fire Dances? Well, that was sometime later, like a year afterwards, uh, yeah. that, that came out. Because it would have been hard to get a, a studio if the world had ended. Yeah. It's just, just to book time in the studio would have been difficult. Yeah, that's the big if. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they did do a bit of recording while they were there. But, you know, not really doing anything apart from hiding in an igloo by the sound mm, of it. Yeah. I'm imagining there were some drugs being ingested. There's got to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, youth left and um, they said, I'm, I'm, I've had enough of this. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> the last album was rubbish and, and they've gone and to you're Iceland. A loon. Yeah, and you're a lunatic. <laughs> I think he started something up with the drummer, Paul uh, Ferguson. He started up a band called Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And they did a little bit of stuff there, but eventually. Which apparently was anything but. I yes. haven't heard. I haven't heard any of their music. Though. Well, it was more of a pop angle, I think. Okay. I think Youth was getting into production around that time. Yeah. Can I talk more. about Youth at this point? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Because well, we should talk about him because he's now left. He's now left. We're not going to yeah. see, see him again. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, now, Youth went on to become a, uh, a very successful producer. He produced, what? among other things, uh, A Girl Like You by Edwin Collins, which is a great song. Well, I've never met a girl like you some crowded house at some he point. He did an album. Yeah. I think yeah. he did Woodface. Yeah. Oh, no, it says Together Alone. Yeah. Oh, well, he, did, he certainly did one of them yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, one of the big ones. Mm. Um, Missy Higgins, The Future Heads. He did a couple of albums with Paul McCartney. That's right. So what were they called? The, uh, the Fireman. The Fireman. The Fireman. Uh, yeah, the Fireman. so uh, Paul McCartney's albums under the pseudonym Fireman. Mm. Mm. He did uh, Marilyn Manson's Mob Scene album. Yeah. Uh, did something with the orb. Well, don't forget uh, the Verve, their, their biggest hit album, uh, Urban yeah, Hymns. He yeah. did most of that, which Urban is a Hymns. fantastic album and completely unlike him. Yeah. Cause it's a bittersweet symphony that's um, He also did Susie and the Banshees Kiss Them For Me, that um, great single of theirs that I really love from about One of your early fans. 90s maybe. yeah uh, PM Dawn set adrift on memory bliss he, well, he certainly was across a lot of different yeah, things yeah. Um, and U2's night and day there was a whole lot of other things but yeah. that, that, that's well he the, still works as a thing. producer to yeah. this day but what I was going to say was when he left this he basically got into well he started to get into dance music and so on and started to do later on uh, was involved in the with the orb with Alex Patterson who was a roadie in Killing Joe. And they started up a label which started, you know, doing sort of 
psytrance or whatever versions of techno and stuff that he became associated with all those for all those years. So he sort of disappeared and mm. pop up and do these productions. But he he left the band and was doing all of this stuff himself. So a very interesting career on his own completely. Yeah, yeah. And mm. um, this was 82 that he left and he yeah. rejoined them 10 years later, but he certainly hadn't been sitting around doing no, nothing. No, no. And something that I think is worth saying about the fireman work with Paul McCartney is that he wasn't just producing Paul McCartney, it was a proper collaboration. Mm. So it was, you know, the original bass player from Killing Joke making an album with Paul McCartney, you know, Clearly worth checking out. <laughs> yeah. Well, the funny thing is that, that Youth was the, probably the least accomplished of all of them as musicians as well. Like he had taught himself and was sort of a rudimentary bass player but had something, which is another interesting thing about post-punk. You didn't have to be, you know, super proficient to have something and he's gone on to do all of this. It's quite quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Youth left. Youth left. Youth is gone. And we're going on to fire dancers? Or well, when you, they came you, back, eventually you, um, he was the world replaced didn't by, end. <laughs> the world failed to end. Yeah, again. And that worked very much to the benefit of Paul Raven. Yes. Who replaced Youth as bass player. He did. And... My interesting fact about Paul Raven is that Paul Raven was Gary Glitter's original pseudonym. Wow. So, so is Paul Raven his real name? I believe so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's so, just a coincidence. Yes. Yeah, so Gary Glitter, his original name was Paul Gad and he mm. chose the name Paul Raven when he was, you know, 14 or 15. And as a 15-year-old, Gary Glitter released his first single under the pseudonym Paul Raven and subsequently released a couple of singles produced by George Martin of the Beatles fame. This is when... Gary was, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. Mm. So like seven or eight years before he became Gary Glitter as such. And when he became Gary Glitter, he performed a ceremonial funeral on the Thames for Paul Raven. So right. after Rock and Roll Part 1 and 2 and, you know, mm. those, the, the first two or three singles, he took a boat out to the middle of the Thames with a coffin in it <laughs> with a funeral party of seven or eight people all dressed in black. Um, the coffin had Paul Raven memorabilia in it, you know, mm -hmm. records and promotional stuff, and they threw the coffin overboard <laughs> as a ceremonial um, departure to Paul Raven. Right. And this wow. is the real name of Killing Jokes. Bass player, coincidentally. I think it's really good that Gary Glitter is still working with youth today. <laughs> we would be if he had a chance. Right. Sorry, Ooh, I had to get that in. have to go I had to get that That's in. the question. Uh, I had to get that in. He couldn't help himself with that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, back to Fire Dancers. Yes. <laughs> uh, released July 1983, once everybody had gotten their heads around the world not ending. Um, <laughs> Yeah, what can you say about and, it? And as I said, uh, uh, Mark, you don't like this album. I, I do not. I, I just um, I had a list of it recently, and um, there's a song, the first song called "The Gathering," which I really liked. Um, what was the other one? The single was called "Let's All Go to the Fire Dancers." So if the world isn't going to end, <laughs> we may as well go to the fire As dance. an alternative, <laughs> we'll have a fire dance. Yes. I mean, this yes. indulges their love of the occult and all the mysticism and a mm. lot of other stuff that they've always been interested in, mm. oddball stuff. Feast yeah. of Blaze was also a good song. There's a song on it that on there, I think I said it's called Me and You or something like that, which is um, it's almost a love song and it's just 
It's a terrible song and it's also not a very good Killing Joke song. I don't know where you're getting me it's, and you from. Is, towards, it, is, it, is it called You and Me? Something along those lines. It's, there's The Gathering, Fun and the Games, end. Rejuvenation, Frenzy, Harlequin, Feast of Blaze, Song and Dance, Dominator, Let's All Go to the Fire Dancers and Lust Almighty. Well, it was a non-album single, oh, Graham, that's why. So if you get the remastered version... Uh, uh, right. it, it's on there right, anyway, okay. but don't. I'm suggesting you do not do that because it's um, yes. it's a terrible album. Um, it was number 29 in the UK for all that, so there you yeah, are. Um, yeah. Despite my misgivings, it mm. was um, quite a success. Now, uh, was that jazz on the cover? Because we were talking about how we n- they never had any uh, photos of themselves yeah, yeah, on the covers. Yeah, right. that's right. That would right. be the first one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a uh, good point. Yeah. That's fourth album in. I don't mind the album. I think what strikes me about it is it doesn't really have any killer hooks, doesn't have any particularly good songs. I don't think there's anything terrible on there, but... But it does feel a little bit like they're they're still trying to feel their way around a slightly different sound, slightly mm. less grim and intense. Just it's definitely more poppy. Mm. I mean, I, I I can see why you like it, Graham. It's certainly a contrast to the earlier stuff. To tell the truth, if Killing Jake have hooks at all, it's usually like a, a great drum beat or a great guitar, well, guitar riff, usually, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I just thought there were a couple of good. Uh, good moments on it. But uh, no, I certainly wouldn't call it poppy. Well, in comparison to their earlier yeah. stuff. I, yeah, To me... It, it's a bit lighter. It's I think. a little yeah, lighter, lighter, lighter. Without yeah. being poppy as yeah, when, yeah. when It's not Spandau Ballet, no, mm. but it's certainly compared to the first and second albums, points the way towards the fifth album, Nighttime. Like it's a nice bridge between those yeah, albums. Yeah. When you hear it, you can see what they were trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Unsuccessfully, in my opinion, but what they achieved on Nighttime worked. Mm. They were great pop songs. They still had that edge and that menace. Um, on the fifth album, so that was that was obviously what they wanted to do, and that was yeah. their most commercially yeah. successful. Yes, I was album. just going to say, yeah. Nighttime was was huge. Might still be their biggest selling album to date, number yeah. eleven in the UK. I think it had success in Australia and New Zealand, America, yeah. um, and had had good hits, big hits. Um, obviously, Love Like Blood being one of them. Great and, uh, song. The, our, our podcasts usually cover the period uh, from seventy eight to eighty three. But we're extending this one out to 85 because, you know, how could we leave out love like that? Kings and Queens is a great song yeah. as well. Um, yeah. Now, Darkness we, Before Dawn, yeah, I like. I think it's a great Night album. Nighttime itself. I think it's another point, Graham, where we can come together. It's a poppy yeah. album, but we, we can yeah. agree that it's a classic and, and, yeah. and I really like the production on it. Chris Kimsey did a great job. It's yeah. a lot cleaner, yeah. um, but very 80s sounding. Yeah. Um, the single 80s was actually pr- released quite some time before the album was yeah, in yeah. April 84. Yeah. Uh, and was a big hit in the clubs. A, yeah, I remember going clubs, out and yeah. dancing to it and, right, and right. friends of mine really liking that song who would never have listened to Killing yeah. Joke in a million years. Mm. Well, there are at least three people that we know for sure heard the song 80s. <laughs> That's well. This is where it's going to get really interesting. One of them might have been Dave Grohl. Might have been. Another might have been Kurt Cobain. Another guy. And Chris Novoselic. What were those three guys up to? They were. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't form a band, did they? <laughs> I think they may have already had a they... band at that point. Well, I don't know when Nirvana got together. Yes. But I think they were more than familiar with the track. Yes. Because... Well, Nirvana's first album came out in 1989, I think. Okay. So we're talking about "Come as You Are." on 
Nevermind in 1989. Was it? 91. 91? I'm not sure. I do like that album, but I'm not sure when it came out. Anyway, be that as it may, the riff from 80s, which we will obviously compare with the riff from Come As You Are, it's pretty similar, and as soon as I heard the song, I recognised, and I'm sure a lot of other people did too. Um, there was a lawsuit sometime down the track from Killing Joke's End, yep. um, which was dropped when Kurt Cobain killed himself. Well, he really didn't want to go to he court. He really he? wanted to avoid having to answer that question. <laughs> but here's where I'm going to throw you a curveball. There's no denying that track is definitely influenced by, by the Killing Joke track 80s. However, The Damned had recorded a song earlier called Life Goes On. In 1982 from their album Strawberries. And when you pull that up and have a listen to it, I think you'll find out who are the plagiarists. (laughs) Oh, really? Killing Joke have stolen that from Captain Sensible, the one and only. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a little-known fact, but um, obviously now everybody will know because, um, you know, the millions of people listening to us It's going to be less podcast. happy talk from Captain Sensible now. <laughs> yeah, well, there's another lawsuit. There's another lawsuit waiting to happen. <laughs> Check it out. Uh, Life Goes On, 1982, The Damned. Uh, but, yeah, look, I think we all agree Nighttime was a great album and probably the one album that we'll all agree on. Yeah, well, that, that's def- that, it's definitely my favourite. Is that when and, you saw them in Australia? Uh, yes, I did see them in 1985, April 1985 in Melbourne. And were you dragged along or you wanted to go? I was I was fairly keen to go, but I, I was at Melbourne University at the time. They played at the uni, so it was a bit of a, a thing yeah. that, that you would go because... Was it a know, school night? It was um, Saturday night. Oh, so you were free, free and easy. Yeah, so I wasn't <laughs> studying, just mm. for a change. Yeah, good to see. I was pretty... Your shoes were polished, everything was <laughs> done. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, the Abata Scouts were ready to rock. Now for two hours, fun. <laughs> <laughs> and they were... Amazingly loud. Yeah. And what struck me the most was how together they were and how just every single member of the band had their particular look and their particular kind of aura. And they all had an amazing aura to them. Mm. Jazz just looked like an, an absolute demon mm. with, uh, I think, eyeliner kind of like you know, de- smeared yeah, on his sort of like Gene Simmons makeup his, on Yeah, it. yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Weird. And uh, Geordie on guitar looking like a flamenco guitarist, looking mm. like a male model, looking absolutely magnificent mm. um, as he was swanning around stage with this absolutely ear-splitting <laughs> wail coming out of his guitar. Mm. <laughs> and uh, Paul Raven on, on bass like a, like a, like a big kind of chunky big, sound yeah big and a big guy seemed seemed like like a big solid kind of guy yeah um with the kind of growling bass sound and uh paul ferguson on drums just really kind of lithe and really um dynamic mm. and they they just looked like a real band they felt like a real band and they felt like a, a group that had been together for quite a long time and they had kind of synthesized the different kind of elements into something that was very, uh, very specifically theirs, and so yeah, I think. Well, I think yeah, I think the fifth album is definitely where it all came together mm. in that respect. I, w- I wanted to say also, Geordie apparently tunes his guitar down a tone, so everything is down lower. So and he mm. is a D. So that and he also before every gig puts three new bottom strings on his guitar to get like that really fresh, chunky, clean sound. But he also he plays a semi-acoustic too, so you do get that sort of resonance. He's got a really interesting setup on his guitar, the way that he gets that sound, but which right. is really at the heart of it is the 
the guts of Killing Joke mm. is his guitar. Mm. I think him, no, and, him and Jazz Coleman have stayed together through everything. They're yeah. the only two constant members for the last 40 years, which makes sense because without those two, yeah. there is no Killing Joke. Though they are now back together with Youth and Paul Ferguson playing and recording again, which is... Um, Fantastic, you know. I haven't heard a lot of the recent stuff, no, but no, um, no, nor have I. It's more heavy, more metal. It's more kind of of that ilk, which is fine. But what drew me to them initially was that funk dub element, which mm-hmm. which I loved, and which is why I still will plump for those first two albums as my my favourites. If you get a chance to hear the remastered versions of them, um, they're really quite special and as good as the the day they were released. Yes, yes, is, is, is what I'm going to go with. Yeah, and it is peculiar aspect of the band that they weren't hugely successful at the time, but they have resonated um, more than a lot of other post-punk bands who were more successful at the time in terms of their subsequent influence. So we've mentioned a, a couple of the acts that they influence, like Nirvana, and, uh, and we should mention that uh, Dave Grohl ended up playing drums. That's on right. A, on the, wh- on the second, no, he played on the whole album, yep. on the second self-titled Killing Joke album. So <laughs> yep. only a band like Killing Joke would release two albums with the same title. <laughs> two self-titled. Yeah, uh, Pete, Peter, Gabriel Peter, Peter Gabriel tried. Peter Gabriel did. At least they were consequent, <laughs> you know, albums. This is yeah. 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. So Dave Grohl played, yeah, the whole um, the whole album, yeah. which was supposedly a bit of a payback for uh, Nirvana ripping yeah. Killing Joke off. Yeah. Uh, which was a nice thing for yeah. him to do. He's a great drummer. So yeah. But there was a, a great clip on uh, YouTube where the Foo Fighters bring Jazz Coleman up on stage and they play um, Requiem live. Oh wow! You should check that out. And at the beginning, um, Dave Grohl is waxing lyrical about how wonderful he thought the Killing Joke were. So um, it's a good clip if you ever get to see it. There's obviously lots of people out there who this band influenced mm. and that's why we're talking about them today. Well, yeah. that's that's exactly right. I think Ministry is another one and I'd also put in Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yep. Anybody that's married punk and funk. Marilyn uh, Manson. Yeah, has has a debt to uh, Killing Joke and, and that's absolutely the case. And I still think the first two albums are what have laid that foundation for their mm. influence down the track. The fact that they're still going is great and, you know, that's unusual. But I don't have any great interest in their more recent stuff, and um, but I'm happy that they're still around. If they came out again, I'd go and see them. I think Graham, you and I saw them about ten years ago. It was about ten years ago at the, yeah. at the Metro here, yeah. and they were great. They were fantastic, I, and they played. They didn't play Love Like Blood or any of the big hits. That it was mainly all the early, mm. early stuff. They did the play the older stuff. Yeah. I, I just remember Geordie, the guitarist just seems incredibly relaxed and languid mm. when he's playing. This mm. gigantic sound is coming yeah. out of his guitar and he doesn't seem to be making any effort at all. <laughs> he's just sort of like dragging his hand across the guitar mm. and these huge chords are coming out of it. It was quite something to see. He's yeah. a real guitar hero. I think for anybody that's a guitar person, he's mm. definitely right up there with um, with what he's done, the sounds he's gotten mm. and yeah. the influence that he's had. But, uh, yeah, look. Great band, one of my favourites. Um, as I said, you don't you don't paint a T-shirt for any old band. Um, <laughs> well, I don't anyway. I'm not. I'm I don't not think anyone paints a T-shirt. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not using that as a euphemism. I did actually paint a T-shirt for them. Um, and yeah, fantastic. They're still going. They had a great influence, and so I will stand by those first two albums, Patrick. I'm sorry. <laughs> as as well, you might. I think they they definitely stand the test of time, and I think it's. Uh, it's quite something for a band to have albums such as they do the first two albums and Nighttime, like three really kind of fantastic um, contributions to, to 
post-punk music and, and you know, they're well worth a place in our Hall of Fame. Count of four. One, <laughs> two, three, four. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> That's terrible. That's a great ending. <laughs>